Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, the podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm David. I'm Monica. And today we're going to be wrapping up our discussion of costuming and fashion in film with the 1960 Jean-Luc Godard film, Breathless. Ne bouge pas, je Michel Poicard is a nihilistic Parisian hood who habitually robs people and steals cars. On one outing in a stolen car, he's pursued by the police for a traffic infraction. He tries to escape them by pulling over on a side road, but one of the cops finds him. Michel shoots the cop and flees on foot. He returns to Paris, hitting up an old girlfriend for cash and looking for his friend, Antonio Baroudi, who owes him money. He meets with Patricia, an American student-slash-journalist, and tries to convince her to go to Rome with him. Meanwhile, the newspapers show the police are getting closer to identifying the cop killer. Michel continuously tries to seduce Patricia, telling her he loves her. She is skeptical of his come-ons and hesitant to go off with him. During one of their outings in the city, she stops by her tailor and is confronted by a police detective. He asks her about Poicard's location, and she tells him she's seen him only briefly. The detective gives her his card, threatening to jeopardize her visa status if she doesn't rat Michelle out. As she leaves the tailor, she is tailed by another police detective. She warns Michelle and is able to escape. Patricia and Michelle go to meet Baroudi to get Michelle's money and flee to Rome. While waiting in a safe house, Patricia steps out to buy milk for Michelle. She stops by a cafe and phones the detective, telling him where Michelle is. She returns to the house and tells Michelle what she has done, saying that she doesn't want to love him. Michelle runs out to the street to warn Broody of the police presence. Broody tries to give Michelle a gun to fight back, but he refuses it. Broody tosses the gun at Michelle and speeds off. The police arrive and shoot Michelle in the back. He runs from them and collapses at the nearby intersection. With his dying breath, he tells Patricia that she makes him want to puke. She asks the police what the word puke means, alluding to various moments throughout the film when she asks Michelle to define a French word for her. Okay, so Monica, uh, thoughts, first impressions on this uh, incredibly important film in the French New Wave. No pressure, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I felt like I would I would emphasize its importance before you tore it up. <laughs> Why do you think I'm going to tear it up? Okay. Well, okay. So let's hear it. <laughs> um, I mean, no surprise. This reminds me a lot of Hiroshima Mon Amour, which um, I don't believe we've ever released that episode, but was the first one we ever recorded. Um, and that was also a new wave film. I had some of the same problems with this that I had with Hiroshima Mon Amour, but Hiroshima Mon Amour, I think, seemed like it was endeavoring to accomplish something that I could respect. I didn't get that vibe from this movie. And I gotta say, the entire time, and I don't know if you're going to talk about this, but I was so distracted by um, Gene Seberg's really, really bad French accent. And I happened to read that she did that on purpose, that like the director wanted her to speak that way. Um, and, and that's kind of a little uh, sub issue. But anyway, that's what I that's one of the things that I kept thinking as I watched the movie. Well, so with uh, with Seberg, I think that's interesting because I had heard that it was deliberate that Godard wanted someone to have a really, uh, really kind of thick American accent when speaking French. I, I don't know how much Seberg was really trying to accomplish that versus like perhaps she just didn't have a very good accent. I don't really know, but we that's, will. I, that, that's just what I happened to read, though, that like people said that because she spent much of her life in France, that when you see interviews of her speaking in French, not like acting in this film, her French is sounds quite a bit better. Really? I didn't realize that. Yeah. So we're going to be getting into uh, Seberg a little bit later. Um, first off, though, let's talk a little bit about the director, Jean-Luc Godard. So certainly 
I've mentioned the French New Wave on here before. It's kind of impossible to discuss film uh, and contemporary film without referencing the French New Wave. There's kind of no way of overemphasizing how important this movement was to kind of the the change, the dramatic change in, in the language of cinema. What we call the French New Wave started in 1959 with the re- release of The 400 Blows by Francois Truffaut, as well as uh, the film you mentioned, Monica, Hiroshima Mon Amour by Alan René. This movement, which was kind of unofficial, as with most artistic movements, it's typically not the situation where a bunch of people get together and decide they're going to make a movement. But here, as we kind of understand it, uh, the French New Wave basically breaks up into two different groups. So we have the Kaidu Cinema Group. Kaidu Cinema is an incredibly famous film periodical founded by, uh, co-founded rather, by Andre Bazin in 1951. And so the Kaidu Cinema Group of the French New Wave was made up primarily of directors who got their start writing critical essays for that periodical. As a side note, uh, Kaidu Cinema may actually be dead. As of, um, I believe, February of 2020, all the writers who were uh, currently working at the magazine quit uh, over a labor dispute. I'm not entirely sure what the situation was, um, but that might kind of be the end of this this uh, this periodical, which was incredibly important. It's a very historic moment in film. Kaidu Cinema, as I mentioned, uh, founded by Andre Bazin, who is a really pivotal film theorist and who is kind of the root of something we've talked about a lot on this podcast before, the auteur theory. Uh, The idea that the director is kind of the author of a film. That idea boils down to Bazan and kind of with many of the writers of of Kaidu cinema. So uh, uh, Godard also championed this as well as Truffaut. A little bit more about Bazan. He was really focused on this idea of film being a medium that should accomplish a sense of realism, right? So he was a really big fan of the film Citizen Kane by Orson Welles and particularly its use of deep focus, uh, which was not used that frequently at that time. And when, when we say deep focus, we just mean that more of the field of view is in focus, right? We're seeing more clearly more of the picture as opposed to having a really shallow focus where there's only kind of a, a very small part uh, that is actually clearly delineated and clearly visible. Bazan hired Godard to write for Kaidu Cinema in 1952. And one of Godard's early contributions, early important contributions to film, was an article he wrote uh, that was actually attacking a previous article by Andre Bazan, or um, pardon, Bazan. I'm going to use about a million different pronunciations for these names. I apologize. Bazan had previously written an article attacking the technique of shot reverse shot, uh, which is essentially we have a shot of one character who is looking off screen, and then we have a shot of the other character who they are looking at, and that character is looking at them. So this is very typical in conversations. You go back and forth, back and forth. And Bazan was very critical of this, and Godard kind of popped up to defend the style. Why was he critical of it? I do not know. I I unfortunately could not find these articles because the obviously Kaidu Cinema was uh, entirely in French, and so it's kind of hard to track down, especially now that we can't physically go to the library. Um, it's pretty difficult to get our hands on this without literally like back ordering issues and then plugging it into Google Translate or something. So Godard started out primarily as a film critic for this magazine uh, and then eventually wound up making film. So I had mentioned, again, the Kai group, the Kaidu Cinema group and the the other group, which is the West Bank group. So Kaidu Cinema that has Jean-Luc Godard, Francois Truffaut, Eric Romer, among others. And the West Bank group uh, had Agnes Varda and uh, Jacques Demy and Alan René, who directed the film Hiroshima Mon Amour. There's kind of a lot of history here, as may be obvious for something this important. There's going to be a lot of information. The basic idea, the basic distinction between these two groups is the Kaidu Cinema Group was primarily focused on film literacy 
and kind of analyzing film tropes, which I think is something that you can see very much here in the film Breathless, whereas the West Bank group was more focused on bringing kind of literary sensibilities to film. Both groups kind of in various ways broke and fractured some of the then rules of cinema, but they did it in very uh, very distinct ways. So Monica, at this, at this point, you had mentioned a little bit that you saw some similarities between Breathless and Hiroshima Mon Amour. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more, because I think for me, I, I feel like when I was watching this, I was noticing more than ever the distinctions with kind of the pacing and the editing and the general technique. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you saw in the two films um, as being similar. Mostly, I think it comes down to the the way in both movies they have this rather intimate portrayal of a relationship with two different couples. and a lot of dialoguing about stuff that maybe doesn't seem that important in an effort to maybe make the relationship seem very real. You get a lot of shots of the characters together in small spaces in various states of undress. And and the, also the rather extended dialogue sequences. That's what struck me as being very similar. For me, Hiroshima Monomore was... Interesting because it was trying to communicate something about war and nuclear annihilation. And as we discussed in that episode, I don't think either of us thought that it it exactly succeeded, maybe, by our own personal standards. But um, the effort was interesting. Whereas, like I said, in this movie, I was a little bit at a loss for what the filmmakers were driving at. I think it's it's difficult now, and this maybe had we seen this in the '60s, uh, perhaps elements of it that were that were so radical would be much more obvious. But watching it now, uh, especially you know as a modern audience, I think it is kind of harder to see like what exactly is the idea behind Breathless, right? So we're actually, we're going to get into that a little bit more later. To round off the discussion about Godard, his most well-known films were his new wave, uh, or were the films he did that were considered part of the French new wave. So starting with the film Breathless and ending with the film Week's End, roughly between 1960 and 1968. Uh, And then after that, he entered kind of a new phase, which was was uh, much more actively political. So these were the films that he released between 68 and 1980. There's a lot of analysis of his earlier work to try and see his politics in his French New Wave films. And I'm not, I don't want to say that there's nothing to that, but my understanding is that like the second phase of his work is much more deliberately openly Marxist or Maoist as he is, he has kind of characterized himself in different ways over the years. Uh, and this period was marked particularly by very experimental and low-budget films. So Breathless and the French New Wave was considered massively experimental at the time that it was released. But with the second phase, I think it starts to enter more of what we understand as being experimental, something that we talked a little bit about when we were covering uh, David Lynch during our short films, right? The departure from kind of a standard like narrative film setup, right? Here he experiments a lot with techniques, but we do still have a lot of the elements of film that are familiar. After his his kind of uh, more political films, in which he was also during that period trying to kind of distance himself from his name, because uh, upon the release of Breathless, he became a massive name in the film world. And so he, I think part of the reason he was trying to make lower budget things is he wanted to kind of uh, get away from that, get away from that that fame. Starting in 1980, he started making more like bigger budget uh, commercial films again, one of which the film Hail Mary actually attracted a condemnation from the Vatican that was popular enough to register with the Vatican, right? And I did want to mention uh, something I find really astounding is that he is still making films today or rather as recently as 2018. 
Uh, so he made a film in 2018 called The Image Book, which is uh, some 58 years after his his feature full length debut. Uh, and it's pretty it's pretty rare to see a director have that, you know, that kind of longevity in their career. So I just think that it's kind of wonderful if you like Godard, there's just so much information to pull from. Uh, so much uh, so much material rather. Also in I believe it was 2013, he did a film called Goodbye to Language, in which he actually shot in 3D. Uh, I have not had the opportunity to see this film, but that sounds absolutely bananas to me, and I really want to check it out. So getting into the specifics of this film, the specifics of Breathless, I wanted to talk a little bit about what makes it French New Wave. What exactly is so radical about it? And the defining feature that I think a, a lot of critics kind of keyed in on was the use of jump cuts. Now, this is something we've mentioned in the podcast before. I believe um Monica, I believe you talked about it when we were covering a trip to the moon, how Melier would use jump cuts to kind of like he would be filming a scene and then stop the camera and bring in an actor and then start filming again to create the illusion that the actor suddenly appeared right on set through some sort of like alien magic, right? Um, so that's a general technique we're talking about. But in this film, it's not being implemented in a way to try and... Um, I suppose in that kind of magician style way of creating fantasy here, it is very literally just taking a scene and kind of cutting it up in ways that were not traditional, right? So you'll see, for example, a shot from the interior of a diner. You're looking out at a street in Paris and you're seeing people walk by and you're watching it and suddenly it jumps and it's different people walk, walking by and suddenly it jumps again and now Michelle is in frame because we're kind of cutting through this one shot and jumping around in it. To this day, is still is still pretty rare, especially in this context, but like at the time was kind of a big no-no. Uh, because the idea is that like it's very jarring to an audience. This doesn't it kind of breaks the illusion of of you you're watching a single moment. So this is something that he frequently does in this film. Another recurring element is he does have his characters look directly at the camera. In one scene early on, Michel uh, directly looks into the camera and speaks to it. Uh, as a sort of narrator, right? Directly speaking to the audience. Again, this is something that is not super common. Perhaps one of the closest analogs would have been the great train robbery at the end when the um, cowboy train robber uh, stares into the camera and points the gun and shoots, right? As opposed to, to that film where it's kind of a, a cut in at the very end is kind of this dramatic sting. Here, it just happens within the course of the film narrative. It's more like integrated into the rest of the film. Much of the dialogue that happens, people will talk over each other during this film, which is not something even today that you typically see in Hollywood films. Uh, you will see it occasionally. For example, the uh, much of the career of Robert Altman uh, is defined by his kind of improvisational attitude towards his actors. And as a result, you get a lot of kind of crosstalk uh, at moments of dialogue because there's not they're not necessarily following out a clearly plotted script. So it's more natural for them to speak over. So this is something, again, that really did not happen at all before this period. The reason they wouldn't do it would be obvious if you're trying to, in a, in a narrative film, communicate specific information about the plot, about the characters, about what have you, you are invested in having your audience hear that information. But here, when the characters talk over each other, you run the risk of the audience you know, mishearing something, missing things. Similarly, there's a moment where where an ambulance sounds over Michel as he's he's trying to tell Patricia something and the ambulance builds up kind of for no apparent reason. The ambulance isn't reincorporated. That's just an element that ties it closer to the uh, the city streets. Uh, and then even within the the kind of non-diegetic space, we're getting music stings that 
appear to be kind of traditional, right? We get the kind of jazzy, like quick, uh, kind of like if, if you listen to our episode about the man with a golden arm, kind of like that, the jazzy, like tension building thing as we see the detectives in Breathless, you know, walk around. But these things are very, very brief and seem kind of farcical, seem to be kidding. It's fair to argue this film is wholly obsessed with the idea of breaking film conventions. Like that is its primary function is to like violate these specific rules. And in some ways, this is is kind of a artistic prelude to a lot of the the political tension that wound up happening uh, globally in, in, in the West in the 60s because you have, have art, the art of film that is literally kind of railing against itself, fighting off its, its you know, the imposed rules of various studios to create something new, to change change these rules so we can have a new understanding of cinema. With all that in, in mind, I'm wondering, Monica, if what you think about this film might be different than other films we've covered on the podcast so far. And if there's anything that kind of seems more similar to a film that would come out today or maybe in the past five years or something. I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're getting at, but something that I noticed here in contrast to most of the other movies I've or that we've watched for the podcast is that the characters, particularly the protagonists, they lack redeeming qualities, I think. Michelle, like, he's kind of an ugly guy. Like, he's not even good looking. Uh, no offense, Mr. Um, I forget the actor's name. I'm sure he's... Well, anyway. <laughs> he, he is still alive. I know he is. Yeah. <laughs> Sir, please don't listen to this. Um, um, but then, But then even for Patricia... Really, her only redeeming quality is that she's young and pretty. Other than that, um, and this is something else that very much annoyed me, is that she she just kind of becomes the trope of the foreign girlfriend. She's constantly asking what things mean. She can't pronounce anything correctly, um, even though she can carry on conversations really fluently, which doesn't make a lot of sense. In a way, that's it seems like... Well, I guess perhaps the focus just of this film isn't into, like, making you empathize with the characters. Maybe that that's just not the point. Um, but the way that they're, I don't know if I would call it flat, but the way that, especially Patricia is very much a trope that seems almost old-fashioned and at odds with a lot of other films we've seen. I, I guess my final thought on that end would be that it does... it. Like stylistically, it seems like a much more modern film than um, Hollywood films of the same time, you know? Right. Uh, let me ask you another question along those lines. Like, did you find this movie funny? Not really. You know, you know what it is? And maybe I'm getting too personal here, but I have been that foreigner who doesn't get taken seriously. I didn't really have the same read on Patricia because I, I think... Um, I think you bring up very good points about how it's like bizarre that she can hold these full conversations, but then she like doesn't understand these pivotal words. But like when I was watching it this most recent time, every time I, I saw that one of those moments, like I thought it was really funny mostly because it felt like it kind of undercut Michelle who just like will not shut up. Right. <laughs> this guy just keeps going and going and going. And what I appreciated of Patricia's character was that it was kind of constantly undercutting him in this way. Like she's only half invested in whatever it is you're saying at this time. And I, f I don't know. I found that very funny. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Maybe it doesn't work for me because I've just seen this approach so many times in how foreign people are portrayed in movies and in TV shows. And even though this movie is so different and so groundbreaking in so many ways, it's still, it falls back on, like I said, like the trope of the, I guess, cute foreign girlfriend who can't like, just the constant asking of like, what does this mean? What does that mean? Like I have seen that so many times on um, Korean TV shows where they have like, a foreign character like it's that kind of thing 
really quick, I did I did want to ask, I think it's pretty common view of the French New Wave, this idea that it was kind of the artistic prelude to like political disarray uh, that would come in the 60s with, you know, with kind of counterculture and cultural revolution. And I think we would be hard pressed to say that we are not currently in the middle of a, a kind of tectonic shift in politics, I think globally, but particularly in American politics. And I was trying to think if there were if there were films or maybe other art that kind of related to our moment now in the same way that maybe Breathless related to the 60s. And I was wondering if you could if you had any examples you could think of. So I haven't been paying the closest attention to new movies. And as I understand it, a lot of movies are having their releases delayed and all that kind of thing. But my impression is that a lot of stuff that is getting released is more escapist in nature, given the situation that everybody's in. The thing that that I'm thinking of is the most salient right now is the Mulan remake, which even though the story isn't exactly escapist, it takes you out of the here and now into like a semi-legendary past and all that kind of thing. Maybe I've missed things, but I don't see any like hard-hitting political commentary films coming out right now. It's hard to say when you're actually in these kinds of moments what will be historically significant and what will be looked back upon as being kind of a signifier of like what was to come and everything is so is so complicated as is but I don't you know I think what what kind of frustrated me when I was singing when I was watching Breathless is like I feel like we don't we are not really confronted with that much art that really feels like it's trying to shake up it's its own medium or is is trying to like deliberately think through what it is and alter that that's not to say that there aren't great films coming out right like equal you know equally great as breathless or or whatever but i i think it doesn't seem like there's really this same radical like shaking the foundations of the thing itself uh style and I don't know. I mean, I I just I guess I don't really have a point to this. I was just a little frustrated because I kept I kept hoping to think of something that was really transformative, and I can't I can't really. Next up, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the the element of film literacy within Breathless. So as I had mentioned at the top, uh, Jean-Luc Godard being a kind of unofficial member of the Kaidu Cinema group of the French New Wave, his 60s films, the 1960 through 1968, were very obsessed with like cinema tropes and techniques. Uh, aside from from some of the techniques that we had talked about earlier, one of the most obvious references would be when Michel, relatively early in the film, he passes a movie theater and he sees the kind of um, this week in the movies and there's a picture of Humphrey Bogart and he literally says kind of longingly like bogey and then kind of looks at himself in the reflection and like adjusts his fedora and like thinks he's real cool and walks off screen, which I think uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the fashion later, but his entire wardrobe and persona is very much like like what if Humphrey Bogart wasn't cool and was kind of dumb and this is you know this is the character we get oh and well I know you don't think Humphrey Bogart's good looking but I was gonna say and what if he was not good looking (laughs) well Humphrey Bogart is certainly better looking than Michelle which you know like no I'm so sorry dude you know we were watching this and Allie Ellie was telling me that it's like, oh, is this where that like stereotype of the ugly snooty Frenchman comes from? (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I looked at her. It was like, I think it might be. I really, I really do think that's where this like kind of sunglasses, cigarette, like cooler than you aesthetic that Americans ascribe to the French. I think it's a lot of it is actually wrapped up in this film. So along, along with that, I think we have this film in particular is, is very obsessed with film noir. Uh, so we have a lot of elements, the, the kind of anti-hero right in Michelle, we have Patricia, who's kind of the femme fatale. Uh, she is the object of his 
desire, but ultimately his undoing at the end by turning him over to the police. These elements are are very much subverted because, you know, as I had mentioned earlier, Michel, he kind of fills the anti-hero role, but he's not an anti-hero because I don't, he's not very cool. You know, one of the scenes um, towards the end of the film when they're meeting up with, um, his friend who owes him money, he's, I think he's like trying to flip his pack of cigarettes or something and he drops it and he has to lean over and pick it up. Uh, <laughs> and in another sequence uh, towards the end when they're in the safe house, he's sitting there with his sunglasses on and one of the lenses falls out, right? Like this movie, it's so funny because this movie is so well known for being very stylish, but he's such a goofball. He's so bad at this. But he's and, like, he's not a lovable goofball either. He's just like a pathetic one. Right, right. Like he's just totally incompetent and self-absorbed. And And the fact that the police don't catch him is not really due to his wit. They have the scene where uh, the police are, you know, like frantically looking for him and they run down into the subway and then we see the other subway entrance where he's like getting off, you know, totally missing them. And it's not because he's so clever and he avoided them. It's because he just wasn't, you know, he was lucky and he wasn't paying attention and the police are bad at their jobs, right? <laughs> like there's no... Uh, we think so much, or at least I, I, I think of film noir as being this kind of elaborate mechanism, all these different moving pieces, and you don't understand the whole, but it's all very complex and beautiful. And this is very much not that. It's very silly and kind of arbitrary in many ways. Um, and then Patricia, who again is a femme fatale, but she's not the femme fatale so much because... She has these kind of secret designs because she is she is secretly plotting or she has, uh, as is so frequently the case, she she has some kind of arrangement with someone else. And so she has to double cross the, our protagonist. She double crosses him because he's a jerk. Like she just doesn't <laughs> like him that much. And she decides to call the cops on him. Is that is that like why she did it? Because she was but like then. So why did she? like him in the first place or is just she was she just i mean why it's i mean it's hard to say because again a lot of this film's legacy you would think that these characters are actually quite cool but i don't my viewing of the film i didn't really think that and she specifically she had the line at the end about how like she doesn't want to love him and so she figured if she could do this act of cruelty of turning him into the cops then it meant that she didn't really love him. So I think a lot of this was wrapped up in possibly the idea that she was pregnant early in the film. She tells him she's pregnant and then he kind of freaks out, but then she says, oh no, I was just kidding. I just wanted to kind of see how you would react. But before that, we got a shot of her kind of like looking in the mirror and looking at her belly, kind of implying that she may have been. So I think perhaps a lot of this perceived like, attraction might have been just this this sense that she felt tethered to him in some way, or at least that was kind of my read of the film. Do you think that she decided to turn him in once, maybe sometime off camera, she found out she actually wasn't pregnant? Uh, I mean, that's possible. I think that seems reasonable. Because um, I, I know she said to him, like, hey, it's not for sure, but then I didn't know. Is she just saying that it's not for sure and it's for sure or is it really not for sure, you know? Right, right. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of hard to say. And I think normally in a film with, with kind of this particular plot, I would say, oh, well, we're supposed to kind of question what her motives are. But I don't know that Godard really cares that much. I feel like kind of our, our, our end impression, at least the end impression I came away with was just like, well, I guess she finally just had enough of this bozo, right? <laughs> One of the um, articles that I consulted while doing the research uh, this week uh, by Paula Morantz Cohen, she wrote in The American Scholar, she was talking about the the legacy of this film. And one thing she kept coming back to was this idea that like it had all these elements 
of a really compelling film, right? This criminal who is trying to get away from the police and is romantically involved with this woman and he wants her to go away with him, but she's not sure. And, you know, all these elements that you would think would really wrap you up in a plot, but they they deliberately don't. You don't really exit the film feeling that much for for kind of anyone. Um, and so her ultimate argument, uh, which is kind of both praise and criticism is that the film is not so much a work of art as it is like a work of criticism. It's, it's more a, a kind of a, a, an essay about film in the context of being a narrative film itself, which I don't know that I, I wholesale agree with every argument she makes, but I think that's a really interesting way of viewing the film. This idea that it is, so obsessed kind of with the tropes that the actual like characters are, are more or less meaningless here on purpose. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, it's like, you can never say one of the, say something like that for sure, for sure. But I think given Godard's like track record and, and long history and especially his, his history of film criticism, I would be shocked to find out that this were really like kind of mistaken or, or just kind of a botched attempt to make it like, film. Oh gee, I forgot that part. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so Monica, I guess kind of thinking about all those things, I was wondering what you think of films like this that are, are so obsessed particularly with like style and, and method that that are it could maybe argued to be somewhat hollow thematically that don't really necessarily have a core or really a function. So the the way that you worded your question in your outline is that um, what do you think of films that rely so much on style and method, perhaps at the expense of function? Um, what what do you mean by function exactly? Um. Well, I guess like in the term in in terms of like form and function, right? Like um for example, like prose and theme, the way you communicate something and then what it is that you're communicating. They can be these kind of films, I mean, it'll be case by case, but they can be interesting intellectually, but maybe not satisfying for a casual viewer. But I guess this film was actually really successful, wasn't it, at the box office? Um, so I actually didn't pull up any any box office figures, but I know this was a big hit in the states and played kind of a big part in how like young Americans saw France. So it was certainly a, a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, maybe that's just down to what you were saying earlier, where the novelty would be interesting for viewers at the time and less interesting to us now because we this kind of filmmaking doesn't look so um, new to us anymore. Right. Right. Well, I guess when, um, when I wrote that question, I was primarily thinking about how in, in so many ways, this is very similar to, uh, to Quentin Tarantino and his films. And in particular, Pulp Fiction, I I would argue because that is, that is the most singularly uh, derivative film of his and not, I I guess I don't necessarily mean that as an insult, but just in the sense that he is very much pulling from several different sources and like kind of every scene of that film is a reference to another film. Right. And he does it, you know, he does it more or less in all of his films, but he's constantly referring to other things. And I think that's honestly, that's part of the reason why uh, I was really excited like watching Tarantino when I was younger I was very excited by all of it because it seemed so odd and fresh and strange and then kind of as I got older and started seeing some of the films that he was referencing I started kind of just gravitating towards like well why would I not just go watch like a Truffaut film why would I need to go watch Tarantino's reference to that film why not just see the original why have to go through the middleman um, and that again, I don't, I don't mean to, to just like totally denigrate or, or attack Tarantino, but this is kind of the, I guess the question I was left with at the end of this film was like, it, it's something that is so referential and deliberately so, uh, uh, superficial and focused on technique at a certain point, 
kind of why would you not gravitate towards films that use technique in service of something uh, uh, honest is kind of a loaded term, but like kind of something more honest. And so next up, something I wanted to talk about um, that uh, occurs relatively frequently within uh, at least this period of uh, Godard's films is the element of the battle of the sexes, right? So in this film, Michel, you know, basically if he's not smoking and robbing someone, he is evaluating or objectifying or harassing women. And kind of throughout the, the film, he is making these proclamations about women are like this, women are like that. Uh, he's constantly telling Patricia that she's actually a coward. American women are this way. He's he's always going on and on about this. Yeah, that that was that was another thing that got to me. I, I get that it's intentional, but the but the whole French people are like this, Americans are like this. I'm like, oh, that is so annoying. <laughs> oh, it it for sure is. Like, I really love this movie, but that is a very grating element of it. On on the other end, we have Patricia, who is kind of playing the opposite role of like kind of keeping. Michelle at a distance and at least my viewing of it, she seemed to understand all of his uh, uh, shortcomings is a very generous word for it, but like kind of <laughs> all of his, his various problems, but she, she kind of stayed in his circle until the very end when she decided to toss him out. Um, and so, like I said, this recurs for Godard, um, particularly in uh his musical from, I believe, 1961 called A Woman is a Woman, as well as the film Pierrot Le Fou, uh, which have a lot of content that is based around like kind of men, men and women's relationships with each other and their kind of perspectives on each other. Monica, I was wondering, how much did you see this as, like, was there maybe a countercultural element to this? Um perhaps in the sense of making Michelle like a farcical emblem of a patriarch. Um, and, and is this kind of trope criticism, right? It kind of going along with what I had said earlier about him being just a really lame Humphrey Bogart. Do you think maybe we're meant to understand this as like, if Bogart were to exist in this other context, he would just be this kind of gross, dumb guy. Maybe. I mean, maybe it's just drawing a distinction between Hollywood leading men and what real men are like or what they can be like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as as you have mentioned, maybe it is a preview of the social change that's to come. I guess the main reason I ask is because, uh, like, since... I'm a fan of this film. I think more so a woman is a woman. I really, I really love that Godard picture. It's something that happens that I try to be cognizant of, but is very difficult is that when I enjoy a film, I tend to want to believe that it has perhaps better political intentions than it did. Well, I mean, I do. It does seem to me very intentional that they're making him look like just every example of the worst male stereotypes, right? Or the kind of ugly side of the the hero persona in Hollywood films. Because there's other movies from this period where the men are terrible, but it's pretty obvious that the filmmakers didn't mean them to seem terrible. That's just the way they are. And that was fine um for some segment of society at that time or in the eyes of that filmmaker you know right i i, I suppose see uh seven brides for seven brothers oh, yeah that was exactly what i was thinking of yep. yeah uh, yeah that's a very good point <laughs> um uh also um a quick side note at one point during the film patricia goes uh to interview this man i think he's um a, a novelist he it's it's interesting because he kind of he's perhaps more um composed and and 
a, I suppose, a bougie than Michelle is, but he pipes off a lot of this this kind of same rhetoric about like women are like this, men are like this, and French people are like this. I think he even <laughs> did like the national stereotypes as well, right? Right. And when Patricia asks him like a, a specific question, I think about what you know, kind of what his goal in life is, or or what his greatest accomplishment is. Uh, he kind of pushes it off specifically to hit on her. So that's it, uh, certainly kind of an up, upsetting scene. I thought it stood out in that way because I think most of most of Michelle, I could kind of watch and just like, this guy is a monster and like that you have that level of detachment. But here I think it was kind of more... Um, personal because the character wasn't as absurd. But the reason I bring this up is because that character was portrayed by Jean-Pierre Melville, uh, who's a very famous French filmmaker. Those of you who are fans of Jim Jarmusch and in particular his film uh, Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai, that's actually a kind of rough remake of one of uh, Melville's films called Le Samurai. Okay, and so let's get down into it specifically with the theme of the month, which is fashion. So unlike the previous films that we've covered uh, in this theme, this stands out because there is actually no listed costume designer on the film. There was a uh, makeup artist uh, who was uh, actually not not listed on the film, but you can find the credits in IMDb that there was someone doing the makeup. Uh, but it seems like the costume design didn't actually have like a speci- specific professional on it. In all likelihood, at least um, as is posed in an article by Kate Shire in Vanity Fair, uh, Godard may have allowed his actors a, a kind of a great a great deal of latitude in choosing their own wardrobes. Um, there would be a couple of exceptions here. Like at one point, Patricia is selling newspapers and she's wearing a sweater with a newspaper name on it. I believe it's the the um, the New York the Times New Herald York New York like Herald that. Gazette. I think it's a now defunct New York newspaper. Or right. Like Right. But other, I suppose other than that, it seems like it was kind of a more free flowing, like there wasn't a specific person attached to designing the costuming here. And so it creates kind of a, kind of an interesting situation. So as we had talked earlier, Michelle is, is very much a, a kind of, um, goofy impression of Humphrey Bogart. Uh, and specifically because he, the entire film, even though he's kind of this low rent hood who doesn't, you know, doesn't seem to have any moral compass and is not concerned with keeping up appearances or anything. He is constantly wearing a suit and he usually has a fedora with it, which is a very like Humphrey Bogart thing to do. But that suit, a lot of the times the fedora is, you know, he's holding the fedora instead. And the tie is kind of tied off at this really awkward length. So as opposed to reaching roughly the um, kind of the top of the waistband, uh, it's, it's more or less in the middle of his chest. Uh, and looks kind of poorly tied or a little bit raggedy. Uh, and then Patricia's character, we see that she's still got a lot of the kind of elements of the 1950s. So like the full pleated skirt, right? And some of those, um, not checkered, but like the stripe patterns that were really big in the 50s. But she has a um, a pixie cut as opposed to the kind of traditional long hair. And it's actually specifically a, a line in the film that she doesn't wear a bra, which certainly would not have been what you would have done in the 50s. Um, and so, again, uh, uh, kind of by this article in Vanity Fair, it seems like this had a pretty big impact on the way Americans saw French fashion. Um, as we had reference earlier in our our theme month on on censored films this was 1960 so this was around the time that foreign films were were kind of making big waves in the american market because of the slow failing of the studio system and the the mppc and the the 
general end of the Hayes Code. So foreign films were were a bigger thing in the States and certainly than they are today even. Um, and so that might have been some of the cultural impact. Uh, Monica, I was wondering kind of in general what you thought of the fashion here and maybe if you had any other insights on it. Well, so you were talking about the short ties and I wondered if his short tie isn't supposed to be a callback to 40s ties because in the 40s, men also wore their ties shorter. Um, Although they were, in general, it seems like a little bit wider and uh, pointed as compared to his. But maybe that's part of the whole, like, he doesn't quite get it right kind of thing. Um, And also, like, tie styles, they would often overlap, um, you know, so people at the same time might be wearing different tie styles, but that's something I thought of. I thought it was really interesting that Patricia was wearing what amounted to more or less a t-shirt, right? When she's uh, a graphic t-shirt or a t-shirt with words on it, when she's selling those newspapers, because that's something that you don't really see until like the seventies, right? Um, That's just, it was not a thing where you had a unit of clothing that had a print of something, right? It was always like an overall pattern. But, and it's pretty clearly because her, it was related to her job of selling these papers. So I thought that was interesting. What you mentioned about the bra and, oh, by the way, did you, um, do you remember in the film a little bit later, they're, they're riding in the car, I think, and Patricia asked Michelle if he'll buy her a Dior dress? Uh, yes, I did catch that. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, so we talked a lot about Dior in our previous episode. Uh, pretty much, uh, Christian Dior began his fashion line in Paris in 1947, and it was hugely, hugely revolutionary and influential throughout um, the entire decade of the 50s and into the early 60s. Um, so, you know, the dresses that she's wearing in this movie, even though this is many, many years after uh, his line debuted and even several years after he had already died, um, is still strongly influenced by the um, silhouettes that he created. But as far as the bra, something that is interesting, actually, is that when you look at some uh, photography of Christian Dior designs from the 40s, actually, some of those women are not wearing bras, which seems super counterintuitive because the silhouettes rely so heavily on having a rather rigidly sculpted body shape, you know, sculpted by girdles and everything else. But I remember distinctly seeing some of those photos with women not wearing bras. And that might have just been a stylistic choice for the photo shoot just to make it interesting. And we could guess that everyday women were not going to go around braless. Um, but maybe, maybe by 1960, um, some people here and there um, would have done it, although maybe not that many. At the beginning, doesn't he steal an Alfa Romeo? Isn't that the uh, car he steals? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think, and he steals it from like a couple, doesn't he? I believe so. So I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, but anyway, the lady in that couple, she's carrying this very famous handbag called a Kelly made by the Hermes leather um, making company. And that handbag had by then become very, very famous because uh, that company had been making that handbag for quite a while. But Grace Kelly uh, famously carried it uh, to conceal her pregnancy um, when she was married to Prince Rainier. So um, that bag became very famous and the house renamed it to the Kelly bag. And it's a very expensive bag that you can still buy today. And I just thought it was interesting to see it like pop up there. That's so funny. She she carried that specifically to mask her pregnancy. It, it, yeah, it's because um, wow. it's if you if you look at it, um, well, it comes in different sizes, but the size that Grace Kelly was carrying is rather large. And the handbags that women tended to carry at the time tended to be smaller, but this one was pretty big. And just because, like, even... Was it even, baby-sized? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I think just because of the, you know, nowadays we think, oh, you know, celebrity is pregnant and everybody gets to know and, like, that's great. At the time, these kinds of issues were a lot more private, even though, of course, she was married and it was, like, proper and everything. It was still something that she just didn't want everybody to know. So you see these shots of her getting out of a car with this purse 
posed very conveniently in front of her stomach. Just, I, w- I was wondering if you had any any thoughts or you would agree that maybe this was kind of another political element of the film, kind of a- as we were talking about the idea that uh, these characters who are kind of wearing elements of like kind of higher fashion or like kind of bourgeois fashion mixed in with a little bit of the the kind of grit and like working class nature. Do you mean the fact that... Uh like Michelle and maybe Patricia kind of aspiring to a higher class than they're in. Is that kind of what you mean? Right. Or kind of, you know, like emulating it, but still being very much like kind of on the streets, right. Or not, not on the streets as in homeless, but you know, kind of down, down to earth more so. Yeah, I think, well, it's encapsulated, right? In that moment where Patricia asked him to buy her a Dior dress and he's like, Hey, you can get a better dress at the five and dime store or whatever it was. He said, but, like, the thing is, to buy a Dior dress, those dresses were very, very expensive. I don't think it was anywhere in the realm of their budget. It's kind of funny because Michelle tells her, well, come on, you can get a better dress somewhere cheaper, which is just the most stereotypically male thing to say to a woman, I think. <laughs> um, but because, because at the same time, he's the one running around st- stealing high-end cars. It's like, well, why can't you just be... He He's at the beginning of the movie, he's being like the road rage driver. And he's. I think he tries to get in front of this Peugeot and he calls it like, he's like, oh, that's such a crappy car or whatever. Um, so obviously he has particular standards for his more like stereotypically like masculine interests. Like he wants to have a nice car, you know? I had never thought about that specifically, but like, there's also, also that moment when they're in her bedroom and she offers him a cigarette and he's like, what brand? Ugh. (laughs) 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 We're talking a lot about how Michelle is this kind of monster. And one thing that we haven't brought up yet, uh, but I do want to emphasize is that the first line of the film, and I'm going to have to censor this, but the first line of the film, he says, after all, I'm an and that, that's that's the setup. So I do I do want to say that it's not that we're seeing this movie that has this carefully crafted character who we're supposed to empathize with. Like he's very self aware. The film is very aware of him. Okay, so Monica, I guess uh, I was wondering if you had any kind of final thoughts on the film. I thought, you know, what's something that's really funny to me is how short your summary was for this movie. <laughs> it's uh, it's like, why do you think that is? I guess this movie is like a little over like an hour, 40 minutes. So actually, the focus is not maybe the, the fact that your summary is so so short means that the, the plot is not really long and convoluted. It's a lot of just looking at interesting dialogues between characters. Yeah, I mean, I think that was that was something I noticed as I was writing is I finished it and I was where I normally would have been halfway through a synopsis of another film I was already done. Um, and I think that's totally the case, because if you go through and you kind of mark the moments that are important to a synopsis and like kind of. I guess we'll have to at some point we'll have to have a discussion about the exact nature of synopses because I think it's very it's very interesting. But uh, when you're writing one, you're very much interested in like the specific moments that motivate a plot that continues something. So some of the character moments uh, obviously get lost because you're trying to create a summation. But here it was kind of astounding, like how much of the film you were able to leave out and still get the broad narrative which i think to your point kind of indicates to us that perhaps the actual narrative of the film is really not that important yeah my summary of disney cinderella was longer than your (laughs) summary of this movie which is so interesting to me and and cinderella is uh, at least 15 minutes shorter right (laughs) i think it is yeah Well, um, I guess kind of along those lines, I did want to mention, um, uh, first off, like, I hope if you're listening to the podcast, um, if you can watch along and you enjoy doing that, I hope you do. And especially with this film, uh, I think even if you haven't done that already, I would highly recommend going back and watching it because I think it's, it's one of those movies we talked a lot about kind of form and function and, and how it's so obsessed with its its style and its its tropes 
I really think it's very difficult to have a conversation about the film without having seen the film. And that, you know, to a greater or lesser degree, that's true with all films. It's a visual medium. Um, but here especially, I think it's really pivotal to to watch the movie. Uh, because again, you can you can read the synopsis, but like that's not that you're not really getting a sense of what this film is about. Um so yeah, I guess that would be uh, my encouragement to anyone who has not seen it to definitely check it out. All right, so my sources this week uh, were, as I had previously mentioned, uh, the article Movies, The Potency of Breathless at 50, Godard's Film Still Asks How Something This Bad Can Be So Good, written by Paula Morantz cohen which appeared in The American Scholar, as well as the article Classic Film Style Breathless, uh, written by Kate Shire, which appeared in Vanity Fair, uh, and as always, Wikipedia and IMDb. Uh, if you would like to follow us on social media, we are Mayday Matinee on Twitter, Maybe Today Matinee on Instagram and Facebook. If you would like to send us an email, Maybe Today Matinee at gmail.com. Uh, if you would like to support the podcast, we are Maybe Today Matinee on Patreon. We do have additional content there, so if you're interested in hearing that, please check that out. We would greatly appreciate it. This week, our patron-exclusive episode is going to be Double Indemnity, uh, which is actually available now on the Patreon feed, if you're interested in checking that out. I'm David. I'm Monica. And this is Maybe Today Matinee. (laughs) 